0: Now, your Bible, if you've got a print copy there, might have a little heading, read something like a newspaper headline. It says, The Triumphal Entry, or Jesus Comes to Jerusalem as King. And in some ways, it does look a little bit like a royal parade. I mean, there's a large crowd, they're spreading cloaks and branches on the road, they're shouting words of praise, talking about a kingdom of David. It does all suggest a degree of reverence and excitement. But if we just read Mark as he presents it, it's actually hard to tell for sure if it's really all about Jesus. Because these are also actually just the words that, they're really consistent with a crowd of religious pilgrims heading into Jerusalem for one of the religious festivals that Jesus just happens to be in the middle of. We know that Passover is just around the corner. And once again, Mark is flagging another Old Testament connection in verse 9. The crowd is saying, Hosanna, That's a word from the Old Testament that means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're the words that come out of a Psalm 118 that's describing a scene of a whole bunch of pilgrims heading up to Jerusalem, uh, up to the temple in particular for a religious festival. And in Psalm 118, the one who is blessed coming in the name of the Lord, well, that's, that's all of us, the pilgrims coming on up. It's not specifically about a king. And then they go on, blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Now, that's not a quote from anywhere in the Old Testament, but it's exactly the kind of thing that a faithful Jew of the time might cry out, longing for God's promised kingdom to come. And here's Jesus, he's in the middle of the crowd, a crowd of people making their way up to Jerusalem, saying the typical things that religious pilgrims might have said, even if Jesus hadn't been there with them. And yet, whether they realize it or not, there's a profound relevance to what they're saying, right? We've been journeying with Mark, we know that these things are exactly what Jesus is about. Hosanna, save us. That's exactly what Jesus said he came to do, to seek and save the lost. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that is what uniquely Jesus does. He comes in the name of the Lord. He is God himself representing himself. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. We'll just Just last week we had blind Bartimaeus by the side of the road recognising that Jesus is indeed the son of David, the great king who brings God's kingdom. And so we've got this crowd doing their thing that they're doing as they head in for a religious festival and right in the midst of it all, Jesus very intentionally chooses to ride in on a colt of a donkey just as the prophet Zechariah said the Messiah would do. But Mark leaves us feeling like the crowd doesn't really appreciate the truth of the very things that they're saying because by the end of the day, they haven't headed to the MCG with 96,000 screaming fans all pointing at him saying, this is him. He's wandered into the temple with no one else around. He has a quick look around and then heads back out to Bethany for a decent night's sleep and the only people that are hanging out with him are these 12 disciples. Because the crowd, and this is the irony, the crowd hasn't seen it. Jesus is being so intentional to flag that he approaches Jerusalem as God's great saviour king. And yet there's this great anticlimax that the crowd doesn't seem to really grasp who is right there in their midst. And Mark seems to be highlighting exactly the kind of question that we asked at the beginning. I think it's, it's the legitimate objection of many people who've been invited to check out Jesus. Why would I follow someone who could walk through a crowd and they hardly recognised him? He was ignored by so many people. The people who saw him in the flesh either ignored him or, or, or rejected him. Why would I follow him? We know it's exactly the kind of questions that Loads of Christians in the first years were asked by their Roman neighbours, Roman neighbours who esteemed power and prestige and the honour of their Caesar. And Mark doesn't try and sugarcoat it. Doesn't try and make Jesus look more popular than he was, you know, as if to say, look, he's blowing up on the socials, you should totally get on board with him. No, he, he just looks his reader in the eye and he says, yes, that is exactly right. This Jesus was ignored and even rejected by those who saw him just as he said he would be so will you follow him ignored by so many rejected and in the end even killed he's hardly riding the wave of popularity so how will you respond that's the real question and and actually it's the question that we shouldn't simply brush aside if you are here today with us and you remain undecided on the matter you're checking Jesus out we'd be delighted to help you wrestle with the evidence, consider the implications, chat with someone over a coffee after church today or grab that little taste and see invite and come along this Thursday night to dig a bit deeper. But as day one finishes with Jesus' first visit, this anticlimactic visit, returning to Bethany for the night, the question hangs in the air, will you recognise this Jesus as your great king? And then as day two kicks off in verse 12, Jesus does something that seems just a little bit out of character. Uh, Verse 12, uh, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing a fig tree. He went to have a look. When he reached it, he found that there were no figs there. There's nothing but leaves. And Mark tells us that this is totally unsurprising because it wasn't the season for figs. And yet Jesus curses the fig trees and it dies. What's with that? Perhaps Jesus has just got the hungries. You know, when you, when you get angry because you're just hungry and it leaves you just a little bit irritable. My kids go like that if they don't have their breakfast. Is, is that what's going on with Jesus here? When he curses that poor fig tree, is it just Jesus with the hangries being irritable and cranky? But before we jump to the conclusion that Jesus is behaving like a hungry eight-year-old, let's consider the starting assumption that Jesus is being just as intentional, just as measured as he's been over the last 10 chapters of teaching his disciples. See, Mark's point is that everyone knew that it wasn't the season for figs and yet Jesus saw the tree and he decided to to head towards it. He saw a fig tree showing the outward signs of life, it's in leaf, no surprise to him, he found no fruit. It's as if he went to the fig tree knowing that it would not have fruit. And then he speaks his words of judgment. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And he does all of this. When does he do it? It's not just the morning, but he's, he's on the journey back to the temple, right? The temple that he'd inspected the night before. The temple that he knew exactly what was going on. The temple that he had a very clear intention of what he was about to do when he was going down there to change things up. And after he's done it, we've just read about it, turns over the tables, drives out the traders. It's his explanation in verse 17 that helps us make sense of it all. You see, Jesus was outraged at the way that the temple was being used. The temple courts in particular, that's a reference to the court of the Gentiles. They were meant to be a place within the temple precinct where non-Jewish people could come and offer their prayers and their worship to the God of Israel. And that was the emphasis of the first passage that Jesus quoted in verse 17. It comes to us from Isaiah 56, where God says, my my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's a wonderful passage in the Old Testament that talks about the inclusion of people from all over the world to come and know God and, and worship him, gather around his throne. And the court of the Gentiles in the temple precinct, that was a physical expression of that. He was anticipating that great promise that would be fulfilled in the age to come. But instead, Jesus had seen what was going on, that the place of prayer had been turned into a means of profit, that the whole sacrificial system that was meant to point people towards God's provision of mercy, who's was just being used to make a buck. Jesus had seen it on the night before, and he was on his way in to signal that the end was coming. It was time for the old ways to change. And as he taught the people there, well, the second Old Testament passage that he quoted, they weren't just an observation, you have made it a den of robbers. They are words of judgment. Jeremiah quote, sorry, Jesus quotes the prophet Jeremiah from 600 years before him. They're words of judgment upon a people who had engaged in all kinds of abuse. And then they came and stood in the temple and said, we're safe. Uh, It's like they were using the temple as barley You know, when kids are playing chasey. No, 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 I'm barley now. You can't get me. We're safe. I'm in the temple. That's the temple of the Lord. I'm safe. They could run around doing whatever they wanted, but as long as they had the temple, they were safe or so they thought. But God warned of a coming judgment when they would see that the temple itself was never what actually made them safe. It was only ever the mercy of God himself. And Jesus was showing that the time had come to change what it meant to be safe with God. Because he was the means of being safe with God, the means of God's mercy for all nations. And when we have that big picture in mind, it helps us to understand That this is all just as relevant to us today. Because it is all about our shared human tendency to presume that, yeah, there are things that we can do or people that we can belong to. I'm in the right club. I've given the right gifts. That'll make me safe with God. It's the religious mindset that says if I go to church enough or say the right prayers, I'll be safe, despite all of the guilt that I've tried to bury. But it's actually right alongside the typical Aussie mindset that doesn't think in terms of temples and prayers but leans on a sense of, you know, that sense of community. Bushfires and floods are great at drawing it out. We rally together around a disaster. Or it's that mindset that says, no, we, we chip in uh, with a charity donation when they come knocking on the door. It's the mindset that figures, I am a decent citizen. I'm pretty sure God's going to let me in. I'm safe. I call it temple thinking for people down under. But the irony is, it is actually the very opposite of what the temple in Jerusalem was meant to be about. You see, the the temple wasn't just some place you could scurry into and call Bali. It was designed by God to show us that God alone is holy and none of us can approach him on our own merits. But in his holiness, God is both just and merciful So for him to be able to maintain justice and yet offer mercy, he must provide a way, a sacrificial system that showed that our punishment can only be dealt with by an innocent substitute. That's what the temple was designed to show. But the human heart has got this amazing capacity to distort good things. And the temple provided by God had been distorted into self-righteousness, self-interest, and an abuse of power. And so we see that when Jesus cursed the fig tree, he didn't have the hangries. He wasn't just being irritable and cranky. When he turned over the tables in the temple, he wasn't losing his cool. It was an intentional lesson in two parts, provided for the disciples to help them understand what he was about to do. You see, in both the curse on the fig tree and the ruckus in the temple, Jesus was teaching that the time for change had come. The whole fruitless system of religion had been found lacking, like the fruitless fig tree that had been cursed. The inherent self-righteous confidence that we're safe was about to be turned over, just like the tables in the temple. Jesus was teaching his disciples something with both the fig tree and the temple, that the time had come for God's servant king to bring an end to the old ways. And so then Mark brings us to the end of the second day, right? You know, verse 19, when evening came, the disciples went back out of the city. And then all of that kind of comes together for us in the third day. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, said Jesus. And then Jesus goes on with these really profound words about prayer and the assurance of God's response to our prayers. And we wonder, how does this all fit and what do I do with that? Because Jesus seems to say, anything I pray for, it's a done deal if I have enough faith. I want to cut to the chase. I don't think this is about prayer in general. I don't think that this is a promise from Jesus that if you have enough faith, then everything you ask for, God will provide. And the flip side of that, the other side of the coin... If you don't get what you've asked for, then it must be because you didn't have enough faith. I know how some people, uh, that, that is how some people have understood this passage. I can appreciate how you get there. But I think if we reflect on this conversation, we only get to that conclusion if we think it goes something like this. Peter walks up and says, wow, Jesus, the fig tree you cursed has died. Your curse was really effective. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. My curse was effective because I have great faith in God. So he answers my prayers and he'll answer yours too if you have enough faith. And then he gives a vivid illustration of something impossible like a mountain being thrown into the sea. So I can understand how we might come to that conclusion, but I just don't think it's consistent with what else Jesus teaches us about prayer or even demonstrates in his own prayer, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays for something that does not happen. And I don't think it fits the context here in Mark. Instead, I think this is all a really important part of Jesus' ongoing lesson, that he's been teaching over these three days since he arrived in Jerusalem. Day one, he approaches Jerusalem as God's great king, even if people don't recognise it. Day two, the king has come to overturn the old way and bring in the kingdom of God and now day three yes the fig tree is withered it's dead because that's a sign of the certainty that the king is here and is bringing change the coming of God's kingdom that will indeed overturn the old ways and so he says to those who who long to see God's kingdom come Like the crowd that said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Those who long to see the coming kingdom of God. Jesus says, have faith in God. He will make it happen. And so his words here about prayer, they're not just about prayer in general, but in particular, the prayerful longing for the coming kingdom of God. And I think that's why Mark pointed out to us that all of this was taking place on the Mount of Olives because what did the prophet Zechariah say about the Mount of Olives? That When Jesus says in his words about prayer, say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, this mountain is not just any mountain, it's not just a sort of outrageous illustration of God doing the impossible. It's the one that God said in Zechariah 14 would be, would be torn apart when God himself came in judgment and salvation. So Jesus says if... If you long for the kingdom of God to come, picture that from Zechariah 14, this mountain being torn apart. Well, have faith in God because he is doing it. God is faithful and powerful to fulfill his promises and achieve his purposes. Yeah, the fig tree that I cursed really is dead because it was my illustration that God really is on the move. But of course, not everyone welcomed the coming of God's king, did they? As we saw when Jesus got back to the temple on, later on in day three. And in fact, as Mark recounts this for us, um, that third day carries all the way through to the end of chapter 13. And there's this whole, we've got, we've got a few weeks ahead of, of wrestling with the conflict and the questions of, of Jesus' authority. Because once again, we see that the religious leaders would rather deny Jesus' authority to bring change than to face up to the need for change. And so as we get to the end of chapter 11, where we got to today, Mark is probing us with questions. Are we just on board with the trend of the day? Are we just going with the popular winner? Or are we willing to follow this Jesus? Now we've talked about through Lent, taking the time just to pause. We're going to do that now. To pause and to reflect on these questions that that God's been probing us with as we approach the cross. Because when Jesus came to Jerusalem, he wasn't coming so he could visit the temple. He was on his way to the cross. And so I think these are some of the questions that Mark is posing for us, to wrestle with, to reflect on, to take into the week ahead and to think upon. From that first day, will you choose to recognise Jesus as he is, even if the crowds don't? He really is. God's long-awaited king, will you follow him? From day two, will you allow him to turn the tables of your life over? All of the things that you're tempted to cling to and to say, I'm safe, (laughs) I'll be right with God. Will you instead cling to him? And from day three, will you delight in his reign? That's what that prayerfulness really is. We see the religious leaders taking pot shots, they're trying to undermine his authority and Mark prods us as we're kind of you know, watching on from the sidelines of, of this conflict with the religious authorities and he says, what about you? Are you looking for an excuse to ignore him, to shut him out, to put him in a quiet box in the corner or will you delight in him as your king? Is it your prayer that his kingdom will come and not just out there but in here too? in your own life as much as across the whole world because the reality is mark wants us to see that jesus was never the trending celebrity (laughs) not the person that the world gets excited about but he looks us in the eye and he says will you follow this jesus so let's take a moment and reflect on those questions